What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings and welcome to the United States Transhumanist Party Virtual Enlightenment Salon. My name is Janati Stoliroff II, and I am the chairman of the U.S. Transhumanist Party. Here we hold conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers in longevity, science, technology, philosophy, and politics. Like the philosophers of the Age of Enlightenment, we aim to connect every field of human endeavor and arrive at new insights to achieve longer lives, greater rationality, and the progress of our civilization. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our U.S. Transhumanist Party Virtual Enlightenment Salon of June 25th, 2023. Today we have a fascinating presentation and discussion for you on the death of death, the long-awaited English edition of the book by Jose Cordero and David Wood, a book that has been published in a multitude of languages already over the past several years. And finally, in late July of this year, it is coming in English. So joining us today are our distinguished U.S. Transhumanist Party officers, including our current vice chairman and director of visual art, Art Ramon Garcia, our director of applied innovation, David Shoemaker, and our director of longevity outreach, Ben Balweg. And of course, Jose Cordero and David Wood are extremely well-known figures within the transhumanist movement. Dr. Jose Cordero is our technology advisor and foreign ambassador in Spain. And David Wood is the founder of London Futurists. He is also the co-founder of Future Surge, formerly Transhumanist UK. And I am thrilled to have them present today on the death of death. So, Jose, please go ahead. Um, well, it is a pleasure to be here with you and with all the transhumanist friends and with my fantastic British co-author, David Wood. Uh, we are going to do a quick presentation covering many issues. I will uh, begin and then he will continue and uh, we will have a lot of discussion at the end to talk about the most incredible thing happening now, which is the advances in longevity. So we are very proud that the book that we published uh, before the pandemic in Spanish originally, La Muerte de la Muerte, now it's coming out finally next month in English. 
So you can get it in Amazon. We are really excited. And uh, we had a lot of fun presenting uh, the book in many Spanish cities. And uh, we even have, as you can see, a common tie, a tie with the cover of the book and his picture and my picture on the book. Uh, I think we are going to do the same also for the English edition, which is very important. When the book came out, it was an immediate bestseller, not only in Spain, but all in the, the Spanish-speaking world, from Mexico to Argentina, where it has also been uh, printed locally. Um, we have used the largest Spanish publishing company in the world, which is called Planeta, Planet, and they they operate not only in Spain, but all over Latin America. So we are really excited that when it came out, it was simultaneously a number one best-selling book in paper and number five best-selling book in Kindle. At the same time, this was really incredible. We are so, so happy. And you can check in the website also in Spanish, La Muerte de la Muerte. Um, for this edition, we have been donating all the income, all the money uh, to two foundations, to the Sense Research Foundation that just opened new facilities in California, and to a foundation in Spain, Apadrina La Ciencia. And why in Spain? Well, because the book came out in Spanish first, and because I'm living in Spain, where the book has been a major, major bestseller. Right now, it is on its fifth uh, big edition, and uh, it's one of thousands and thousands of copies. And this is only in Spain, I repeat, because it is published also in Mexico, in Argentina, in Colombia, in Peru, so all over Latin America. Uh, after the major success in Spanish, it came out in other languages, as you can see in uh, Portuguese. In fact, the Portuguese edition is the only one that is more or less similar in the cover um, as the Spanish edition. So we are very happy. Also, we are donating the book rights to another group in Brazil working on anti-aging in the state of Sao Paulo. Then it came out uh, also in French, La Mort de la Mort, in, um, in Turkish. If you can understand this, this is Turkish, and it is in Turkish. In uh, German, in German, they changed the title. Uh, in German, it means the victory over death. And they also put the infinity sign, the victory over death. Uh, in Turkish, they also changed the title. I forgot to mention. In Turkish, it means immortal human, immortal human. And in Russian, it came simultaneously on two different editions. And uh, uh, the title was also changed. In Russian, it means death must die which is kind of Russian style, death must die. And now, as I mentioned, it's coming out uh, in English, but very soon, or just uh, right now as well, in Korean, soon also in Bulgarian, in Japanese, and in Chinese. Um, you can see here the book covers in, uh, in Korean and in Bulgarian. In Bulgarian, it is called, like in uh, Russian, death must die death must die. Uh, why this is so important and it's becoming so popular uh, in Spain as well, in Spain, because there are many Spanish scientists working on anti-aging. Actually, one of the most famous ones, Juan Carlos Ispizua Belmonte, 
a few days ago in Boston. He was giving a, a presentation and the conference hall was so crowded with scientists, with uh, researchers, not uh, a public conference. It was a conference only for researchers on aging, but it was overcrowded that the police had to go and get uh, out half of the people, half of the scientists. And I think this is incredible. This is happening now. And uh, this was unthinkable uh, five years ago or 10 years ago. By the way, this article is from my alma mater from MIT, Technology Review, and the uh, author, the journalist, is also Spanish. Antonio Regalado is a Spanish scientist. So you see there is a lot of interest in Spain and, and Spanish scientists and Spanish journalists. In fact, um, Altos Labs, that was started, uh, as you know, by uh, Yuri Milner and um, uh, Jeff Bezos and other billionaires, um, it was discovered and it was the first article was also by Antonio Regalado, my Spanish friend that writes at MIT Technology Review. But the point about Altos Labs, which was also unthinkable five years ago, 10 years ago, it began with 25 scientists, out of which five were Spanish. Five of the original 25 scientists were Spanish, including, as you can see, Juan Carlos Ispizua Belmonte. Uh, so in Spain, we have had a lot of interest on these issues. We just invited a few months ago the Nobel Prize winner in medicine in 2012, Shinya Yamanaka, and he got the Nobel Prize for discovering that it is possible to rejuvenate a cell, that aging is flexible, and that we can reprogram the age of the cells. Um, we are going to be talking about many of those things in, in a conference that I am very proud of because I am one of the original organizers. And this is the biggest longevity conference in the world, which is called RAD, Revolution Against Aging and Death, in Los Angeles, actually in Anaheim, south of uh, Disneyland, the original Disneyland, that will also be celebrating a centennial, a hundred years in uh, September, October, Disneyland is celebrating its first 100 years. And, uh, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil, Aubrey de Grey, uh, Liz Parrish, and many more, Bill Falloon are speaking there. In terms of the dates, uh, I actually like to say I use the dates from my dear friend, uh, Ray Kurzweil. He just sent me the manuscript of his latest book, The Singularity is Nearer. And he talks about the dates that he has been mentioning for decades, not from yesterday or from last year, not even from his previous uh, book, The Singularity is Near, in 2005, almost two decades ago. He has been talking about those dates since the 1980s and 1990s. And the two magical dates are 2029 and 2045. Ray Kurzweil, um, defense that by 2029 to 2030, we should reach longevity escape velocity. And he writes that in his book, coming out soon, the singularity is nearer. So we will basically become in a way immortal if we make it to 2030, if the longevity escape velocity is really rich at that point, because then we will live enough 
to live forever, even if aging, if aging until 2045, when we will have rejuvenation technologies. So those are the two dates, 2029 to 2030 for longevity escape velocity and 2045 for the singularity and rejuvenation technologies. Uh, Ray Kurzweil talks about all these exponential uh, trends. And actually you can see it when I went to university, when I went to MIT uh, 40 years ago, I used IBM punch cards. I used that. One IBM punch card was about 1K of memory. Today, we have pen drives of terabytes. So we have gone from 1K to 1 tera. Uh, and this is in my lifetime to 1 terabyte. So this is incredible. But what is happening in biology is even more incredible. This is even faster, much faster than the well-known Moore's law. So the sequencing of the genome uh, is going down uh, quickly uh, in cost and also in time. The first human genome took 13 years and it cost all together about $3 billion, out of which over $1 billion was from the U.S. government at the beginning. So it, this is fantastic. This is much, much faster than Moore's law. And this is important now because we just came out from the COVID pandemic. And if you see the number one risk factor uh, in COVID is age. Age is the number one risk factor, um, but not just for COVID, basically for everything. But talking about pandemics, if we look at pandemics throughout human history, COVID pandemic is very small, very small compared to other really big pandemics, like the bubonic plague in the 14th century, the Black Death, killed one out of every three Europeans. One out of every three Europeans are estimated to have died. In fact, altogether, 200 million people are estimated to have died when the population of the planet was well, well below one billion people. So we are talking about an incredible death toll. Or even closer uh, diseases like smallpox or the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu, which was not a Spanish and which was not a flu, killed uh, over 50 million people, according to some experts. And the population of the planet was about only 2 billion people as a century ago. So those were much uh, worse pandemics than COVID. Uh, but COVID has paralyzed the planet. So if COVID, which is a small pandemic in historic terms, has paralyzed the planet, then we really need to paralyze the planet for the biggest pandemic of all, which is aging and death. That is the biggest problem. And as you can see, aging is the number one risk factor for basically any disease, for influenza, for cancer, for Alzheimer's, for cardiovascular diseases, for almost everything. So we need also to change differently that diseases are related, but the center of all diseases is aging. Aging is the mother of all diseases. It is the main cause of all chronic diseases. So we need to begin thinking about aging and the big problem of aging. So let's go back to our book coming out now in English. Uh, the Death of Death. It has a fantastic prologue by my dear friend, Aubrey de Grey, 
that I have known since last century, since last millennia, I actually have known and followed Aubrey the Great, and I helped to translate his book into Spanish, The End of Aging. The End of Aging or Ending Aging in Spanish, we translate it as El Fin del Envejecimiento. And it has a different approach with the epilogue by also my dear friend Alex Shavaronkov, who also wrote a fantastic book called The Ageless Generation. So our book comes with uh, two very incredible uh, people, Aubrey de Grey and Alex Shavaronkov. But talking again about Aubrey, actually, because I have known him for so long and I have admired him what he has done, I actually was upset when my alma mater, MIT, published an article basically criticizing him and saying that the things he said were impossible, that maybe he was basically a charlatan in 2005, um, that we could not live forever. But I am really happy that MIT Technology Reviewed changed its mind 14 years later. And in the new cover of uh, the magazine, uh, as you can see, in 2019, MIT Technology Review said, basically, old age is over if you want it. So this is a paradigm change, how MIT was basically saying it was impossible and then saying, well, it is actually possible if you want it. So this is how we get to the death of death that has fantastic uh, support. We have, did, we have done an incredible overview of, of everything happening in many countries, in many areas, with many experts. And we have really nice reviews, like for example, Michio Kaku. Michio Kaku, who is a very, very famous physicist um, in the USA uh, with uh, Japanese origins, or my dear friend, uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, who wrote this beautiful uh, quote, and I, and I read it. We are entering a fantastic voyage into life extension, crossing different bridges that will take us into indefinite lifespans. The death of death explains clearly how we might soon reach longevity, escape velocity, and live long enough to live forever. Beautiful quote. I'm so thankful to, to Ray. And then also, uh, other very famous, uh, well-known uh, scientist, George George, who is also basically a professor of Harvard and MIT. And he wrote this beautiful quote, Jose and David have captured the spirit of, of what might be the greatest revolution in history. Not some abstract, far distant promise, but an exponential growth of rigorous discovery and technology in our midst, but understood by only a few. This clear prose will help you join the conversation and choose a path. You should def definitely read this international bestseller. And so I just want to tell you briefly our bestseller, uh, as you can see in many languages and more to come. It is coming in uh, 10 more languages in the next 12 months. So I'm really, really excited. Uh, has nine chapters and a, a fantastic prologue, as I mentioned, from Aubrey the Grey, a fantastic epilogue by Alex Shavoronkov, and a beautiful, beautiful appendix where we have the chronology of life from the beginning of life to the future projections. So with that, I want to uh, 
ask my dear co-author, David, to continue with the presentation. And uh, now let's go onto your screen, David. Many thanks, Jose. As you heard, there are some nice commendations from very distinguished people as to why this book should be read. And in fact, if you open the book, you will find many more such commendations. But I'm not going to talk through them now. I'm going to give you my own personal view as to what's really important about this book. And there are nine chapters, as you heard Jose say. I'm not going to go through all nine chapters, but I want to give you an indication as to what question each of these first few chapters is exploring because they're all written to answer a question that is often in people's mind. So in ch chapter one, we address the question, isn't death intrinsic to life? Come on, people say to me, you can't talk about the death of death. Death is inevitable. Look at biology, people say. Everywhere you look, you will find creatures getting old and dying. But in this chapter, we say no. In this chapter, we give lots of evidence of parts of biology that don't have aging and don't have death, at least not any pre-programmed death, not any aging due to disease. So we look at unicellular organisms. We look at other species, which in various ways can be said to be immortal. We look at some situations like the stem cells, the germline in our bodies, the germline which is passed on to the next generation, it starts at zero age. So there is capabilities in biology to regenerate. And there are examples such as cancer, which is also regenerating and in some cases biologically immortal. So there is nothing intrinsic to biology that says there must be aging and death. And then people say, all right, but individual species are given particular lifespans by evolution, and there's nothing that can be done about them. And then chapter two, again, we contradict that common viewpoint. We point out lots of evidence that aging is plastic, meaning that there are things that could be done to individuals in a species or even to the species as a whole so that it will live much longer. Lots of things can be done, lots of different interventions like calorie restriction, like genetic reprogramming, like treating senescent cells, and so on. So there are plenty of examples of creatures that are negligibly senescent, they don't age, and there are ways to treat at least some animal species to make their lives not only longer, but also healthier. And many people will sort of grudgingly accept that. But then people will say, all right, this sounds nice, but frankly, humans aren't going to live much longer anytime soon. And they point to what they see as examples of poor progress. After all, there have been gerontologists for more than 100 years talking about possible interventions like eating yogurt, other treatments that would result in humans living longer. So people say, in principle, this might happen, but in practice, it's not happening anytime soon. And that's what we tackle and answer in chapter three. 
we point out the scope for an acceleration of treatments that will in due course significantly extend human longevity. We point to more and more people working in this field, whereas in the 1980s, there were very few who dared to work in this, and they were generally thought to be crazy. It was thought to be the end of your career if you mentioned the possibility of manipulating species to live longer. But then every 10 years, there's about 10 times as many people doing serious work in this field. And it's not just scientists anymore. There are members of the world's largest companies who are very interested in tackling this. And there's always been an anti-aging industry, a cosmetics anti-aging industry, and more and more people are looking for treatments that won't just make them look younger or even feel younger, but will have an impact. So this is poised to be the world's largest industry. We look at the evidence for that, not only in industry, but as George Church said in his commendation for the book, this is the greatest revolution in history. And we look at examples of how revolutions often started very slow, apparently made no progress until enough of an ecosystem was formed, enough progress was made with technology. And people will sometimes accept that, but they'll still say, well, this isn't going to progress anytime soon, is it? And they know that people like Ray Kurzweil, and also in this book, The Death of Death, we talk about possibilities of rejuvenation by 2040. And people say, frankly, this is impossible to believe. And that's what we tackle in chapter four. We point out examples of exponential progress. You've seen some of them in the opening slides by Jose. We talk about the fourth industrial revolution and it's still at an early stage, but what can be done by nanotech, biotech reprogramming, information technology, new forms of AI, and then due, force, due course reprogramming brains with Cogno technology. This will lead to what Ray Kurzweil has called a series of bridges to longevity escape velocity. There will be some treatments that will give us a bit more lease of life. And if we take full advantage of these treatments, that will mean we are around long enough to take advantage of the next set of treatments. Then people say, you know, I guess it could happen, but if it happened, it would be terrible. They say, yes, maybe for me as an individual, I would like to live longer, but if everybody lived longer, it would be awful. It would be bad for the planet. It would be financially ruinous. And that's the arguments we explore and answer in chapter five. We point out that on the contrary, it would be hugely financially beneficial if people didn't fall foul of the chronic diseases that consume so many healthcare resources that if there was fairly limited but carefully targeted healthcare expenditure on the common causes of chronic diseases, then that would repay itself many times over in what people call the longevity dividend. So we look at that argument. And then we look at the psychological arguments, the psychological impediments, because often they operate subconsciously, which lead people to say, I guess this might be sort of possible, but frankly, it's selfish to want to live longer or it's immature to want to live longer. Haven't all the great saints in history said it's good to accept death? It's good to accept aging? 
And that's what a lot of our book is addressing. We point out a paradigm change is pending and we look at other paradigm changes. It's not just that we will live longer, but impoverished. It is part of a cosmic story that expands our lives. And then in that book, we look at examples from hindsight. And I'm gonna spend a few minutes looking at some past examples, because as people reflect on these past examples, it can put them in a new frame of mind to be much more positive about the possibilities Jose and I are talking about in this book. So let's talk about accepting what nature gives us, what many people seem to recommend. And here I'm borrowing a slide from Liz Parrish, quoting from a senior editor in The Atlantic. Nature wants five of your seven children dead. Nature wants you dead by 50. That's what we have inherited from nature. If people say they want to accept what nature gives, that's what they are saying. On the contrary, almost everybody alive now says, well, thank goodness that we are living a bit longer and that our children don't die so frequently so young. And that is because of science and technology and, by the way, visionary philosophy and by sometimes good politics as well. So we should not be accepting what nature gives us. The famous prayer, the serenity prayer, popularized by the theologian Reynold Lieber, it says, God grant me the grace to accept what I cannot change and the courage to change what I can change and the wisdom to know the difference. Maybe in the past, there was nothing could be done about aging. So it was wise to accept aging and death at that time. But now we need to be wise to see the difference that is within our grasp. And we need to be courageous enough, bold enough to fight off that old manner of thinking. Let's look some more at what caused death in the past and what was done about it. Here I'm showing the top 10 named causes of death in the USA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1900. Why 1900? Hold that thought. It's because I do believe there's a lot of good foresight that can be developed from this better hindsight of what happened in the past. Indeed, as I develop this story over the next few minutes, there will be several points I want to highlight, points that will hopefully change people's minds about how we can accelerate the death of death. So what's shown in this picture is deaths per year per 100,000 of the American population and the top 10 named causes. So I wonder if you know what the top three causes were. 
you might wonder about cancer. Was that one of the top three? It was in eighth position. How about dementia? Things like Alzheimer's and so on. Ninth position. How about heart disease? Fourth position. Stroke? Fifth position. Accidents? Sixth, seventh position. All right, so what's left for the top three? Number three. I doubt any of you would guess this unless you have studied medical history. Gastroenteritis, infectious diseases of the digestion system, killing people by diarrhea. Number two, tuberculosis. Number one, pneumonia and influenza. Let me fill in the rest of this briefly. Six, kidney disease. Ten, diphtheria. What's the significance of the color coding? Hold that question. So I'm not going to talk so much about pneumonia and influenza. I'm going to talk a bit more about tuberculosis because that was, for most years, for most of history, the biggest single cause of death. There was a slight anomaly in a few years around 1900. There was a minor worldwide flu pandemic, people believe. But tuberculosis killed one in nine of all people who died in America in 1900, and it's been estimated it killed at least one in seven of people who had ever lived up to 1800. And I kind of list, courtesy of Wikipedia, people who died at a young age from tuberculosis. You can see here politicians, royalty, many artists, composers, many people whose lives were cut very short by tuberculosis. Now, imagine you were in, I don't know, 1870 or so, or 1900, and you were struck down by tuberculosis, or there was the possibility that you would get tuberculosis. What responses were in people's minds at that time? Shall we just take that acceptance approach, which was advocated? Many people said, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Just be calm. Perhaps you might pray and plead with the deities for some respite demonstrating good behavior. Perhaps you might try and regain natural balances, maybe by going to a sanatorium, which was very popular for a while. Maybe keep yourself clean. People tried all that, and it didn't make much difference. What about the revolutionary idea that you could actually intervene medically to treat tuberculosis? Many people thought that was a dumb idea. One example is this distinguished lady. I doubt you'll recognize her, but she had a great deal of influence in many parts of the world. Her name is Mary Baker Eddy. She was the founder of the Christian Science Church. She wrote a very influential book in 1875 about science and health. Don't expect disease to be treated by physical interventions. It's not a physical thing particularly. It's something on the spiritual or mental plane. And if you have medical treatments, don't expect it to help you. And she wasn't entirely wrong. For most of history, most of medical treatments did not help most people. People maybe felt better. They were trying it. But medicine killed people as often as it helped people. That's a shocking thing to say, but that's accepted by medical historians. Not everybody thought like that. So here's one of the heroes of this story. His name is Robert Koch, a German scientist. 
who not only thought that medicine could do something about it, he actually, with his microscope, identified the particular germ that was causing tuberculosis in 1882. And he also identified the causes of other infectious diseases that often killed many people. And he demonstrated that there were different germs causing different diseases. And suddenly it was clear what was the cause in many times. So what happened next? A remarkable story. You can see at the top the statistics I shared with you earlier from 1900. But as people accepted the insight that diseases were caused by germs, which could be uh, transmitted in all kinds of ways, there was a new hygiene campaign. People should stop spitting. Ladies should stop having skirts that dragged around the ground and gathered dust. They were encouraged to have shorter skirts and ankle length. Gentlemen were encouraged to shave their beards. And that did help. Then there were medical interventions, vaccinations, which brought down the death rate from tuberculosis. A bit later on, there were antibiotics. And at first, the antibiotics were terrible because they gave a temporary respite to TB. People thought they were getting better, and the disease returned in terrible, more virulent forms. So if Mary Becker Eddy had still been alive, she might have snapped the fingers and said, I told you this medical intervention stuff is no good. But people figured out if you gave a double dose of antibiotics, that was enough to cure most cases. And then there was a third antibiotic added in as well. And you can see the death rate from tuberculosis in the USA is a fraction, a tiny fraction of what it used to be. So let's come back to this chart. There was an idea that disease was caused by microscopic organisms. It took a while to develop tangible interventions, enlightened by the idea, vaccinations, antibiotics, better hygiene, and it plummeted the number of people dying from tuberculosis. But here's the really interesting thing. Similar treatments caused a plummet in the number of people dying from gastroenteritis, the number of people dying from diphtheria, the number of people dying from pneumonia. That single revolutionary insight transformed millions of people's lives around the world. And if we run this chart again, compare the top 10 causes of death in 1900 with the ones in 2010, and I thank the researchers who published this data in the New England Journal of Medicine. Pneumonia and influenza still in the top 10, but nothing like as deadly. Suicide is creeping in there. That's a subject we could discuss further. Kidney disease is still in the top 10, but killing people at a much lower rate. Diabetes is making an entrance. Dementia isn't killing as many people as it used to. Accidents, well, in the 1950s, there were many people dying with accidents due to car crashes, but due to health and safety regulations, that went down again. What's left? Stroke isn't killing as many people as it used to. Number two, cancer. Oh, my goodness. Cancer is killing a lot more people. People who previously would have got cancer and died, but instead they got infectious diseases and died younger. Now, they're not getting these infectious diseases. They tend to die of cancer or heart disease instead. And you can see the color coding as well. These ones I've shown in brown, as Jose has already mentioned, they all are aging related. 
as we get older, decade by decade, we become more and more likely to die of these diseases. So what are we going to do about it? People have recognized, indeed, since 1825, since Benjamin Gompert, a member of the extended Rothschild banking family in London, he did a lot of analysis. He wanted to know which life insurance premiums should be charged to people at different ages, and he figured out that, actually, people tend to die more often. Every eight years that you live from middle age, you are twice as likely to die. So what are we going to do about it? I'm going to run this same picture again, which is the same as my picture for tuberculosis. What's people's response to diseases of aging? Many people say, can't do anything about it. Let's maybe pray, try to appeal to the deities with our good behavior. Perhaps there's something we can do with natural balances, fresh air, maybe individual treatments for each disease. And the revolutionary idea this time isn't just medicine. It's medical interventions against aging itself. But just as it took a long time to translate that idea from people like Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch into tangible interventions, it will take a while to turn this into actual treatments. But there's an increasing number of ideas. People study human superages, people study animal superages. That's what we talk about in chapters one and two of the book, understanding why they are negligibly senescent in various ways. And more than that, we can use some of the more modern scientific engineering interventions to do things like of AI-powered medicine, nanosurgery, stem cell treatments, biological reprogramming, and more. So we make the case in our book that this could be mainstream as early as perhaps the second half of the 2030s. How's it going to happen? As I said, it's a reversal of thinking, similar to the Copernican revolution of Copernicus. Because before Copernicus was around, people said, you know, the Earth is what's important, and there are these heavenly bodies, and they rotate around the Earth. And Copernicus said, actually, if you really want to understand things, you've got to put the sun at the center of your worldview, and the Earth is out there moving around the sun the same as the other planets. And the case Jose and I are making, along with many other people in the rejuvenation biotechnology field is, we have to do a similar Copernican revolution. Poor health is our interest. It's not enough just to look at heart disease, cancer, dementia, stroke, and diabetes, and leave aging to last. We have to put aging at the center of our research. That's Copernican revolution number one, Copernican revolution number three. And we've gone through Copernican revolution number two already, which was that the poor health in 1900 was transformed by putting dirt and germs at the center of our thinking. Now for the complication. None of these revolutions proceeded smoothly. They all took time. They all took science and to an extent engineering as well. When Copernicus put the sun at the center, actually his theory gave worse predictions than you could get from Ptolemy's ancient system with cycles within cycles. It took another genius, Johannes Kepler, to figure out, hey, the planets don't move in circles, they move in ellipses. You needed 
people like Galileo with his equipment, such as telescopes, through which he showed people moons rotating around Jupiter. And that gradually made people comfortable with this different conception. And most of all, we needed Newton's invention of calculus and the laws of motion to tie everything together in a way that nobody could deny this is a much better way to understand science and the cosmos. In the same way, the germ theory of infectious disease, it needed better microscope of Robert Koch. It needed greater skills in manipulating chemicals and biochemicals and various other engineering tools, things which came along as outputs of the second industrial revolution. And it didn't go smoothly. Robert Koch identified him as a hero. Later, he became a sort of villain because he was too quick to say he had figured out the cure for tuberculosis. And a couple of the things he advertised and advocated turned out to be nothing of the kind. It took many mistakes, but eventually, as we saw, the results was dramatic. It's the same with dealing with non-communicable diseases by addressing aging. It's going to need more precise tools, the outputs of the fourth industrial revolution, nanotech, biotech, infotech, and cognitech, which we talk quite a lot about in the book. And it's probably going to need some further tweaks to the existing theories of hallmarks of aging. You know, currently people say there might be seven hallmarks or nine hallmarks or 10 hallmarks, and it's not clear which is more fundamental and which is less. I think we probably need a few big breakthroughs. Maybe it's similar to moving from circular orbits to elliptical orbits. Maybe it's figuring out that some of the hallmarks are truly more fundamental than others. But we'll get there. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the field is exploding. What I'm showing you here is the subject of one fascinating line of research. People are studying super ages. Can you guess what the commonality is between these two pictures? It's showing the same four people on the left. The family is headed by Helen Reichardt at the age of nine. On the right, they're all in their 90s. And they all lived into their hundreds, and they were all healthy into their hundreds. Two of them, in fact, lived to 109. And they were, with one exception, the youngest, became blind in the age of 101, but the others all live pretty healthily all their lives. They are an example of super ages, which means people give this definition that they didn't have the chronic diseases of aging until at least 95 or later. So what is it about these people? And the fact that they are in family groups suggests that it's something worth studying, and it's not lifestyle. Helen Reichardt smoked most of her life, Nir Barzlai, the famous researcher, asked Helen Reichardt, 
didn't any of your doctors advise you to give up smoking? And she said with a smile, yeah, four of them advised me to give up smoking, and they've all died before I did. I'm not saying this to encourage you to smoke. I'm in saying this to point out there is probably something more to living longer than just lifestyle. So people are studying their genes. And it's not being as easy as we'd hoped. It turns out there is no one gene that all super ages have. It looks like evolution has found many different solutions, but it hasn't been motivated to pass them on to subsequent generations. So we are studying what these genes do. And some of them are for management of cholesterol. Some of them are for dealing with the human growth hormone in different ways. So we can learn from humans that live longer and we can figure out what's going on in their bodies and we can apply some of that in our own treatments. As for animals that live long, one of the most famous cases is demonstrated here, the naked mole rats. Some of them have lived as long as 39. One of them might even be 40 years old now in the group run by Shelley Rockenstein in Calico. They don't age in the sense, I'll show you in a minute, that the older they live, they don't follow that Gompert's law of being more likely to die being older. It's hard for them to get cancer as well until fairly recently there were no known cases of these creatures having cancer. But some terribly ingenious or wickedly ingenious researchers have finally figured out how to give some of them cancer. But left to their own devices, they typically don't get cancer or osteoarthritis. And let me just pull back the kimono of the scientific research a little bit as an indication of some very interesting stuff that's going on. People figured out that one characteristic of these creatures is they have in their extracellular matrix, that's the bit between the cells, a much higher molecular weight version of something called hyaluronic acid. And not only is it different, these creatures have more of it than most other animals. Might that be significant? So when that was found, people said, which other creatures also have lots of hyaluronic acid? And it turns out this breed of dog is the same. The Sharpei dog, which was bred for hundreds of years in China for its excessive skin folds. And some people think they look pretty, some people think they look ugly, but the reality is that these genetic, these uh, breeders, didn't understand anything about genetics particularly, they were, without realizing it, causing an accumulation of high hyaluronic acid in their connective tissues. Well, does that mean these creatures are less prone to cancer? And it turns out that there is, uh, in Switzerland, a very large cancer canine registry that's been looked after by Swiss veterinarians from different veterinary laboratories for, what, 60 years or so, with 105,000 samples, which includes 241 Sharpay dogs, so that's enough to be statistically relevant. And yes, they have less tumor incident, a lot less compared to other dogs of similar age and weight. They still die, they die of other things, but it's an indication this is worth exploring. And that's what scientists do. So there is a scientist, Vera Gorbanova, who has genetically reprogrammed some naked mole rats to take out that gene that gives them this particular form of hyaluronic acid, and they become mouse-like in the sense that they are easily prone to cancer. Can you do it the other way around? Can you take a mouse and give it this genetic change? Well, you can, they get a transgenic mouse, 
As I mentioned, Vera Gorbanova has presented this research various times. And yes, their mice are in many ways fitter, healthier. They run faster than their non-treated colleagues. Stronger grip. They look more attractive. And they are less likely to get cancer. And they have some lifespan increase. Right. I said I'd open the kimono briefly. It's time to shut that kimono. I'll point to this results from calico that shows you know some creatures have this gompertz curve others like the naked mole rat don't we should be researching this more and more the basic theory this insight that aging itself can be treated can be summed up on this slide it's almost the end then we'll open up for questions the basic theory is that life is a very complicated metabolism and as that metabolism runs it, from time to time, generates damage at the cellular level, damage inside the cells, damage between the cells, and the body has lots of mechanisms to repair that damage. But as we live longer, the repair mechanisms get stressed and strained, and some of the repair mechanisms are themselves damaged, which means that over time there is more damage. And you can see here the roots of an exponential acceleration. And what happens, these bits of damage make it more likely we get all of these chronic diseases that I mentioned earlier. And when we are relatively young, the body has mechanisms to suppress these diseases. But as the damage accumulates, it's harder and harder for the body to deal with it, which leads to death. So if we want the death of death, what can we do? Some people say you can't do anything about it. Let's just age with dignity and make people live as healthily and as positively as possible. But as people have more diseases, it typically have multiple things going wrong. So this is not an attractive way to live. Some people say we can edit the metabolism and perhaps we can do that to some extent. It is particularly difficult because there are lots of side effects to editing. But the main thrust in much of the anti-aging industry today. The really promising part says, you know what? We're going to improve the damage repair mechanisms. We are going to intervene to remove the damage and to repair, especially the repair mechanisms. And we're gonna do this periodically. This is still hard. This is gonna be the hardest medical program that's ever been, but it's less hard than the other stuff because there's a limited number of categories. And we'll get there step by step. So this is the vision in our book. We will step by step approach the longevity escape velocity. Gradually, we'll enable people to escape the downward pool of age-related decline, not just temporarily living longer lives, but increasingly longer and longer lives as they can take benefits of more treatments until we get away from the downward pool altogether. The death of death. It's not just we are living longer, we will be forever young. If we want to, we will be forever fertile. That's another whole can of worms, so to speak, but the longest living albatross, 70 years old nearly, until recently had an egg laid every single year, despite being so ancient. She shows no sign of aging. I said until recently because it looks like her mate has gone missing. Maybe the mate has died of disease or being predated. 
you can read about this remarkable albatross in Wikipedia. Her name is Wisdom. So we could repair the damage of aging. We could, if we want, rejuvenate all aspects. It's Jose's and my view. We could do this. And when people say, should we? When they come up with these philosophical arguments, it's better to accept. We say, absolutely, we should. Hell yes. And then, well, what can we all do to accelerate this? And that brings us to chapter nine of the book, the final section. And in chapter nine, we outline nine things that people should consider doing if they want to accelerate this outcome. And some of the things can be done by everybody, and some things probably won't be suitable for everybody, but it's worth thinking about them. Item one on the list, it's worth either be learning a bit more of the science. We needn't be scientific geniuses, but we should gradually get used to some of the scientific discussion. So that when people say, hey, you can't live forever because of this thing called the second law of thermodynamics, we can answer, hey, the second law of thermodynamics says that order decays, but only in a closed system. And life is not a closed system. And so on it goes. So we can learn a bit about the science. Some people can take that further. They can contribute to what's known as citizen science. In other words, they can start eventually understanding the scientific publications about aging at the detail level, and sometimes they can make contributions. I think at least some people listening to this who maybe not thought of themselves as citizen scientists, they might get involved, and within a year or two, you could be making some contributions. So that's a scientific understanding. But I urge everybody to learn the broader arguments as well, because people's opposition to this is not always scientific. In fact, it is rarely scientific. It is much more often rooted in economic arguments, which are incorrect, or arguments about overpopulation, which are incorrect. So learn the broader arguments and therefore help to steer the public conversation so that more and more people are able to say, you know what, the death of death will be a good thing. So let's not just take part in that conversation. Here's a bigger ask. Elevate the public thinking. It's not just about living a few years longer, which is useful. That's a sort of a normal aspiration. But look for the chance to put people into a much bigger frame of mind. You know, we could escape from aging altogether. And you know, it would be good to escape from aging altogether. So let's elevate the public thinking. Finding the time to inject that bigger dimension into the discussion. But, and this is very important, as we do that, we've got to avoid endorsing snake oil, by which I mean some of the treatments that are sometimes advocated. Hey, this particular treatment will make you young and virile again. And maybe some of them will, but maybe some of them are also dangerous and they haven't been properly analyzed. And if we are too careless or cavalier or irresponsible in advocating everything that comes our way, we may lead to three kinds of problems. One, some people may get seriously ill as a result of some of these treatments. Second, they may spend a lot of money on these treatments to no effect. They may not die, but they may damage their bank balances. And frankly, they should have spent their money in other ways. And thirdly, if there's too much snake oil surrounding this initiative, it's going to put people off. People are going to say, hey, I've heard this before, and it never works. It's always exaggeration. It's always hype. So we have to be sure what we advocate has got a strong scientific evidential backing. Next. 
Some people, I've got a question mark here showing it's not for everybody. Some people may be able to get involved in what we have called the biggest industry of all time. Get involved in various ways in a startup, part-time or full-time. Maybe you think you've retired, but maybe it's time to get a new lease of life supporting a startup in this field. And if you can't join a startup, some people can donate. And this is very important. If you have access to some disposable income, what you spend in this field could make an enormous difference. So I have to declare an interest here. I sit on the board of LIVE, the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, uh, but I think it's doing some of the most important work in this field. So some of you should consider donating there or to other groups. And if you can't do that, you can, in all cases, build bridges to a bigger community where there are people who might be able to do these things. So maybe you can't contribute to citizen science, but you can get involved in talking to people who might do citizen science. Maybe you don't have access to so much money yourself, but you can gradually start talking to people who can talk to somebody else who's got money and they can be persuaded and inspired to do that. So if we all figure out what our roles are, we can make this outcome happen quicker. It's not inevitable. Much as I'd love to say, I think it's a done deal. It's not a done deal. We could end up with too much snake oil, too much confusion. We could end up with too much noise and not enough signal. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But if we are smart, if we are our best selves, we can lead people to the death of death. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you, David, for that enlightening presentation. And thank you to Jose before... David, for his installment of this presentation, it was quite thorough, and I think it gives our viewers an excellent idea of what the death of death is about. And I also would like to encourage everyone watching this salon to pre-order the English language version of the death of death on Amazon. Here is the link, because if you pre-order the book now, it will rise further in the Amazon rankings and therefore be exposed to a larger number of people. So thank you again to Jose and David. And now we go to our viewer questions and comments. Luis Arroyo presented uh, quite an interesting quotation. There are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And 
it seems to a certain extent that the arrival of longevity escape velocity may look like this because right now in recent years we have not seen a significant improvement in life expectancy in fact our friend Didier Cornell points out that for the first time since many decades we have uh, since 2019 despite better science and clear advancements in our understanding of biological aging shortening life expectancy and while COVID played a big role, it wasn't the only contributing factor. In fact, the deaths of despair among middle-aged Americans began to rise in the mid to late portion of the last decade. So I'm curious, David and Jose, what do you think about this observation that perhaps the arrival of longevity escape velocity may follow the trajectory of uh, essentially a very rapid arrival prior to which we might not see that much of an increase in life expectancy. But then fairly quickly, we will start to see many more people, for instance, surviving into their 90s than before, and those people surviving into their 100s. Is that a likely prospect for people alive today, including people who may be in their 60s and 70s right now? Uh, let me go first. Um, because that is a, a great question, you know? And uh, I partially tried to answer it, uh, mentioning the book of my friend, Ray Kurzweil, uh, that you should all read also next year when it comes out. I'm just finishing reviewing the manuscript. And uh, the book has been a bit delayed because things are moving so fast, so fast, that, uh, uh, you know, he, he cannot stop updating it. So I'm just telling him, like other people who have reviewed the book, that uh, it doesn't matter. You know, things will keep on accelerating even faster. So, uh, you know, the, the perfect is enemy of the good, as we say in Spanish. So the book is good enough. But talking about the book, he talks about longevity escape velocity. And in a way, uh, he has cursed me a bit because he is consistent. He maintains that uh, between 2029 and 2030, we are going to reach longevity escape velocity, basically for most people, because life expectancy keeps on increasing. It is true that in some countries, because of COVID, it just went down now, but, but it is recovering. So this is nothing in the long-term trend of uh, history. Uh, so there was a small uh, drop, but anyway, the trend is picking up again. And as Ray Kurzweil defends in his book, uh, The Singularity is Nearer, we are very close to um, this movement that is exponential again. This is not linear. In the next 20 years, we are not going to see changes like, like in the last 20 years. We are going to see changes, technological changes, like in the last 2,000 years. I repeat, in the next 20 years, more technological changes than in the last two millennia because things keep on accelerating. But about longevity escape velocity, again, there is a lot of, um, a lot of discussion if we can make it. Uh, but he maintains, I repeat, that by 2030, um, we are going to gain one year per year we survive. 
but it's still aging. Okay, that is the problem so far, but but that's okay because even if we are still aging, but we win one year per year, we survive, then it should be okay until we reach rejuvenation technologies for everybody that they should happen again by 2045. And that I, I think is very reasonable, that by 2045, we should have rejuvenation technologies basically for everybody who wants it. And basically, uh, uh, almost as at no cost for the consumer, like the COVID vaccines, they had no cost for the final consumer. Of course, they cost billions of dollars to develop. Uh, but at the end, for the consumer, because they have been paid by governments, by foundations, by corporations, by individuals, wealthy individuals who, who believe in the advances of technology, then this is uh, covered uh, for everybody. I believe the same will happen for um, rejuvenation technologies. But again, just to close, uh, um, I, I think uh, Ray Kurzweil is too optimistic, but I trust him. Uh, you know, his forecast uh, predictions have been 83% um, correct. Uh, in the last few decades, actually, I reviewed his projections for the year 2009 when he was, I repeat, 83% correct. And sometimes he was wrong, but he was wrong because he expected things to come later than they actually happened. For example, uh, if you remember the, the very famous controversy, if a computer could be a human on chess, this was the big controversy last century. Uh, Ray Kurzweil said this would happen by 1999. It actually happened earlier. It happened in 1997 when Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov two years ahead of time. Ray Kurzweil was again wrong uh, about uh, 15 years later when he said that a computer could beat uh, uh, humans on Jeopardy which is a very famous knowledge game on US TV, Geopardy. And actually that happened in 2011. He thought it was going to happen uh, uh, later. So things are moving faster. So it is possible that things keep on moving faster and that we reach longevity escape velocity, certainly for some people um, by 2030. Therefore, I am optimistic. And that number is also in our book on the chronology of life, because uh, once you get the book, uh, this is a preview copy. Once you get the book, which is important, please get the book now. This is important so that we kill death before death kills us. This takes a lot of people, all of us, to work together. And I actually want to say, because I'm very happy, I saw that we already have uh, some person who, who got the book. I want to acknowledge this publicly. Uh, Sci-Fi by Alan Crowley. He bought the book and he says... Uh, something, even if I don't make it to escape velocity, I have ordered the book. So I will have a good read along the way. Well, um, let me tell you, Alan, I think you will make it to longevity escape velocity if Ray Kurzweil is right. And if we make it to 2029 to 2030, uh, we are going to live long enough to live forever. Anyway, so that's my answer uh, concerning longevity escape velocity or the methuselarity, the methuselarity. I want to give a slightly different answer to that. I want to give more of a Ray Kurzweil answer than Jose has given. So I'm daring to be more Ray Kurzweil than Jose. 
So what Ray Kurzweil points out is that although it might look like an exponential curve, there's actually a group of different jumps inside it. So the power increase in computing is not just Moore's law. Moore's law is once of a series of steps. Before there were integrated circuits in computers, there were valves. And before that, there were relays. And you needed to go to the next level before you could continue to progress. The improvements in computers with vacuum tubes were quite slow. Once people figured out you could use transistors, that didn't go very fast either until people figured out how to put transistors on an integrated circuit. So it's not just a smooth curve. You have to look more closely and you see a series of paradigm shifts. Even inside Moore's law, sometimes there are delays and difficulties and you need to have a big change in engineering. So I'm reading a fascinating book just now. It's called Chip War by Chris Miller. It's a whole fascinating history of how Moore's law was continued and the different players around the world. And some of the things they needed to do is use smaller wavelength light. In fact, it's not light anymore. It's ultraviolet. And in fact, ultraviolet was still too large to etch the pictures, the lithography, onto the silicon wafers. So they needed to go to something called extreme ultraviolet. And it took 30 years before they could get this to work. You know, uh, the head of Intel for many years, he eventually was persuaded to invest in it. And it took 30 years before that stuff worked. And if they hadn't done it, Moore's law would have stopped and there would not be progress. So that's a big jump inside semiconductors. Why do I say all this? I think it's going to be the same with treatments for aging. I don't believe we are going to go smoothly to longer and longer lifespans. I know there's analysis that says longer lives has been a fairly constant thing. Well, I'm not surprised that it's slowing down. I think we've reached the limit of what we can do with traditional mainstream medicine. We're gonna to have to wait until the new paradigm is ready. And it's a bit like extreme ultraviolet. It may take longer than people had hoped, but when it is ready, my goodness, it will accelerate things again. So I don't foresee a smooth progression of greater longevity. What interests me isn't just trying to extrapolate from looking from the outside. You have to look at the inside. And what's going to make the difference is the actual treatments that I'm talking about, whether it's treatments to extend your telomeres, reprogram your telomeres, or treatments to deal with senescent cells inside humans. None of this is widely used at all. In fact, it's hardly used at all inside humans. There's a small number of people who have had treatments to extend their telomeres by this. It is not surprising there is no increase yet in the longevity, average longevity. We're going to have to wait until these treatments are refined, improved in the way that the improvements to Moore's Law took a while. And when they are put in place, then we can expect a jump again. So I may expect a sub-exponential growth for a while before we get the super-exponential growth. That's the part of Ray Kurzweil's analysis that most intrigues me. Yes, thank you very much to both David and Jose for your answers to this question. I know that questions of this sort are on the minds of many of our viewers and many transhumanists more generally. I would also like to highlight some words of praise from Luke Robert Mason, who says he is such a fan of David Wood and that nobody has done more for the transhumanist community. 
David was the reason that Luke became interested in these ideas back in 2010 when he hosted the Humanity Plus UK conference. And then our friend Spectral Valkyrie also writes that she was freaked out by transhumanists at first, but uh, she then got the book Vital Foresight by David and it changed her mind about transhumanism. So this kind of intellectual activism and particularly the meticulously rational manner in which ideas on transhumanism and longevity have been presented by the works of David and Jose have made an impact and have attracted more prominent supporters and participants to our community. Now I would like to give the floor to an individual who has been working assiduously on life extension over the past decades and who is one of the world's most distinguished experts in telomere biology, Dr. Bill Andrews. So Bill, having heard these presentations from Jose and David, what are your thoughts and do you have any questions for the authors of The Death of Death? Let's see, Bill, I think we need to unmute you. Yeah, so, so I, I forget to unmute myself every time. Uh, so the uh, main thing I want to say is uh, congratulations to Jose and David. I, I think this will be the best-selling bestseller uh, in the field ever. Uh, and uh, I, I've known both of them for a long time, heard them both talk. I think they're, they're very on top of the subject, and it's about time a book came out that's really, really going to be covering everything. Um, I do have some questions. Um, one is uh, the first book, the uh, Spanish version, I think that came out about five, six years ago. <clears throat> um, is is the English version now going to be updated to include new technologies and stuff like that that weren't included in the old book? And is the old book going to be updated to include those two technologies? Um, let me go first again. And Bill, uh, I am so happy to see you. Uh, you know, I love your work and I admire all you are doing. And in fact, our book, uh, which is also your book, has a beautiful quote by you. So it has a testimonial oh. by Bill Andrews. Uh, if you remember, um, you wrote that for the first edition in Spanish. Indeed, it was five years ago. The original Spanish edition came out in 2018, about this time five years ago. Uh, right now, we are on the fifth edition here, as you can see in Spanish, fifth edition uh, in Spain and other editions in Mexico, Argentina, so on and so forth. Um, we have actually been updating all the different editions. The English edition, it's uh, totally updated, we actually just finished ma making some comments last month. That is why it was also a bit delayed on our side. Uh, so yes, it is totally updated. Um, when we wrote the original uh, edition, there had been no COVID. There was basically no CRISPR. There was no alpha fold. That is artificial intelligence for a protein folding or for drug discovery. None of that existed. So it is really so incredible. We have seen so many advances. Also, messenger RNA technology. You know, 
People didn't know about it. Uh, it was not in the Spanish edition. It is in the English edition. It is in the German edition. It is in the Chinese edition on my head, in the Japanese edition. So yes, we have been updating the book for each different edition. We are also trying to update the different editions uh, in, uh, in other languages. And again, in the case of Russian, uh, let me ask you, because uh, in Russia, they had these two different covers. Uh, the book was basically the same. They just did what is called marketing AB uh, to check which one sells more. So my question to you, uh, Bill, later, which cover do you think sells more in Russia? The one in your left hand. Uh, tell me, white or black? White. This is the more the more scientific one. Uh, it has DNA, but no, this is the one that sells. Uh, death must die. This sells like seventy percent. This only sells thirty percent. But it is the same book. I could have told you that with regard to Russian culture, Jose, in terms of the imagery that would appeal within that culture. Very overt anti-death imagery actually works quite well. And generally speaking, more overt direct messaging works better in Russian culture than in Western European or American cultures. Okay, thank you, uh, Gennady. And uh, great question, uh, Bill. Um, David can also answer some of that because he has helping uh, uh, me, well, uh, we are working together on updating uh, many things in the book, also updating the bibliography. You know, David Sinclair hadn't written his book when we wrote our book, uh, or Near Barcelona. So actually, we had to incorporate things from Near Barcelona, David Sinclair, also Michael Greve. Some people say Michael Greve in uh, Germany. Etc. So yeah, we have been updating uh, everything. Also, we have uh, local uh, epilogues in different editions. Uh, like we have a special one in Russia, and a special one in Turkey, and a spe special one in Japan, in uh, Korea, etc. Because we want to get the book to be as local as possible, uh, with local quotes, lo local testimonials, uh, local epilogues or uh, prologues. Um, but yes, we are trying to update the book. And we will keep on doing this because it's coming in 10 more editions. So a lot to update because things are moving fast. David, uh, your comments on this question. There's a lot happening all the time. It's hard to keep on top of it. So how do we keep on top of it? How does anybody keep on top of it? You've got to plug in to good communities. You've got to plug into people who can help you keep on top of things. So these virtual enlightenment silence are a good part of the answer. But people must each find their own preferred community, whether it's the Radfest community, Lifespan.io is a tremendous community as well that does a lot of interesting analysis. So keep on top of it and keep sharing what you find and keep asking questions. Otherwise, we might end up latching too firmly onto an idea that sounded good in, I don't know, 2021, but it's by no means the best way forwards in 2024. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for those answers, Jose and David. And we have an interesting question from our friend from Spain, Sergio Torero, 
who says, great talks, David and Jose. How would you revise the dates projected in the book for longevity, escape velocity, and the singularity in view of recent developments in AI? And how long, in your opinion, will it take for us to reach AGI or artificial general intelligence? Um, again, just to follow the same order and to say greetings to my dear friend Sergio Terrero in Spain. Uh, Sergio, who is also a transhumanist who created a transhumanist party. In fact, he says it is the first transhumanist party in the world, Alianza Futurista, the Futurist Alliance. So anyway, Sergio, uh, your question is, is very good in terms of what is happening with uh, AGI and longevity escape velocity. Well, um, we are still standing by the dates uh, that we copied in a way from Ray Kurzweil. Uh, for both uh, longevity escape velocity and for passing the Alan Turing test that uh, in a way, in a way, uh, sometimes is compared to having artificial general intelligence. So, uh, and these are the dates also that um, Ray Kurzweil talks about that here uh, in this book that comes out next year. Uh, he says that we will pass the Alan Turing test and bridge artificial general intelligence by 2029. Again, it might happen earlier because he has been wrong. Again, talking about jeopardy, it happened before he expected, or talking about chess, it happened also earlier than he expected. So this is moving so fast that it might happen earlier. And then uh, the singularity by 2045 might also happen before 2045, which is the date that the, he expects the singularity to happen. Also, uh, AGI is very important in terms of longevity because uh, big data analysis with all these artificial general intelligence processing can help us on drug discovery and understanding many things about aging that our little tiny brains cannot comprehend but AGI can. Uh, so just one more comment before uh, asking uh, David to continue. We are doing right now a study about AGI, actually two studies. Uh, David is doing one uh, with London Futurist, and we are also doing one with the Millennium Project, uh, because this is a top priority. This is so important that next year, for the first time, the United Nations will hold a summit of the future in New York, September 2024. And one of the areas is artificial general intelligence. And we are uh, participating on that. We are doing a study about how this is moving very fast, um, how uh, we consider about alignment problems, control problems, regulation uh, issues. All of these issues are very important. But anyway, so. AGI is important for longevity, and that is why I think this will maybe help us to get to longevity escape velocity on the date that Ray Kurzweil says, uh, because of AGI helping us. So, David, what is your take on that? More Kurzweilian than me, again? We could have a whole two-hour discussion on just this point. Basically, I say AI is going to change more things more quickly than most people expect. I don't think we will need to wait until 2045 to have a good chance of AGI. 
the singularity, assuming we don't mess up along the way. I think once we reach the first breakthrough, which is that an AI can do everything that a human can do, and so we're no longer able to distinguish when we're talking to an AI or when we're talking to a human helped by an AI, that's the Turing test, as soon as we reach that, I expect AI to go into a very fast improvement mode and it won't take 16 years, which is the amount of time that Ray Kurzweil had in his previous book between 2029, his prediction for passing the Turing test, and 2045, the singularity. I think we're going to have a much faster takeoff. It's possible that the Turing test date might be delayed. It's possible, on the other hand, it might happen even faster. What can you do with AI to help healthcare? Huge amounts of things. One thing is to identify targets for intervention. When we have aging or disease, there are lots of things happening as part of complicated metabolism, complicated biomolecular pathways. Where about in there do we want to intervene to repair damage or to, inter to frustrate uh, a mechanism that's building up damage? So AI is increasingly identifying new targets, is coming up with uh, recommendations in companies such as in silico medicine by Alex Zavoronkov, who has written the epilogue to our book. They are making significant progress in using AI to say, okay, out of all of the aspects in a complicated series of biochemical interactions associated with the disease, associated with the growth of damage, here is where it is probably best to look for a solution. The second thing that can be done is once the target has been raised up, is to imagine a molecule that can have the desired effect to slow down that mechanism or to interfere with it. And just as in recent times we've had AIs that have been able to imagine pictures when we give them a description, increasingly we are able to have a generation of molecules in the sense that we'll say if a molecule had such and such a layout, it would be the right one to intervene. So in silico medicine with Alex Zavarankov has generated candidate molecules, which they thought there was a good chance would be effective. They came up with a number of about 30 to deal with a particular disease, IPF, uh, if I remember the name, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's when there is uh, scarring uh, fibrosis inside the parts of the digestive system. They came up with a number of drugs that might work, and they tried some of them in real life. Now, the real-life trials is still the thing it could take a lot of time. And this is what leads some people to be still fearful, skeptical, that we can make significant progress soon. We might come up with new ideas quickly for the drugs, but it's still going to take, if we're not careful, a lot of time to go through all the Phase two and Phase three trials, which is where there's yet another idea from in silico medicine, which is that by studying the data from phase one and phase two trials, can we reliably forecast whether it's going to be successful in phase three? And this is a very controversial idea, but if we could figure out from the earlier data what's more likely to be successful, that could save a lot of money, if not time, and allow people to be more targeted. Then there's something even more radical, which is instead of doing more tests in real humans, we should have better and better models of the relevant biology so we can see in silico 
clearer indication of what the possible complications are. So all of that are different ways in which AI could accelerate. But there's more. AI could also address a long-standing issue in nanotechnology. We've had since the 1980s this remarkable vision by Eric Drexler, not just of small systems, but of programmable nanofactories. And this has not yet come to be, and it's been held up. Now, it's likely that better AI is poised to help breakthroughs in nanoengineering and to build these not just molecules but intelligent molecules we call them nanobots that can do significant elements of nanosurgery nano repair if this could be introduced it's a much smarter kind of drug or smarter kind of biological intervention so that's another way in which ai could accelerate treatments do we need artificial general intelligence to do all of this stuff not necessarily we might be able to use today's narrow intelligence which is pretty broad actually and given up on the distinction between narrow and general i think what we've got is a lot of broad ai which is able to do quite a lot of different tasks at once and our large language models are in this category so but maybe today's broad ai will be sufficient to get us all the way to the longevity escape velocity however if we do reach artificial general intelligence before then the likelihood is that these AGIs will look at much more data and will make more sense out of it and will be able to say to us, hey, you guys, don't you realize that this obscure researcher in Romania or in Peru has already come up with a very interesting idea? You seem to have missed it, but because I, as the AGI, have read all these documents and I have a better idea, I recommend that you fast track this project. So AGI with that ability, could get us to longevity escape velocity a lot quicker. But maybe we don't need to wait that long. Maybe we can just hurry up and make better use of today's broad AI. Thank you very much to David and Jose for those answers. And Sergio Torero also says, thank you for such a thorough and informative response. Our friend Silverfan, agrees with the substance of the answers. He writes that these near-term AI developments could for sure have an impact on the speed of arrival for longevity escape velocity. And your remarks about the importance of the virtual enlightenment salons as a venue for sharing information regarding these ongoing and accelerating technological developments. That point is well taken. And Art Ramon has written in our YouTube chat that this is why he tries never to miss a salon. So uh, we always appreciate you being here, Art Ramon. And now I'm curious, uh, what questions or comments do you have for Jose and David? Yeah, I bought the book uh, last September. And in one of the earlier chapters, uh, Jose, you mentioned that uh, that by 2050, not sure if that's exact, but by 2050 that uh, the healthcare cost would be unsustainable. It would just be astronomically high and uh, that most governments would not be able to afford end-of-life care for people. So can you elaborate on that a bit more? Because I, I for some reason, I just really haven't heard that anywhere else. Uh, thank you, Art Ramon. And uh, yes, you got the, the Spanish copy because you also speak Spanish like me. 
But now you can get the English version, which is updated. But the argument stays the same. It remains. And it is a very important point. Uh, if the trends continue, um, the health system is going to collapse because we are spending more and more money And this is unsustainable in the long term. And actually, it is very, very sad. Uh, to give you some rough numbers, uh, very rough, is that uh, we spend maybe 80% of the money on um, health expenditures in the last few years of life of the person. And the person still dies. You know, how horrible. You spend 80% of the money on health and then people still die. So if they didn't die, it would be okay, but people still die. Uh, so that is why we need to cure aging. Aging is a horrible expenditure and it is bankrupting uh, governments uh, very soon. Uh, so we need to stop aging for financial reasons as well. Besides for humanitarian reasons, which is the important one, I think, for ethical and moral reasons, but also because financially, otherwise, all governments are going to go bankrupt in the long term. Also because there are less and less children and more and more older people. And because health expenditures are so high later on in life, uh, you know, the, it, it is impossible to pay it, uh, long term if things don't change. Fortunately, things will change. And I'll tell you just quickly two things. Instead of putting all the money at the end on uh, health expenditures and then let people die, we can put it at the beginning so that people don't age and people don't die. So they don't become a financial uh, burden and also a health burden or a social burden. If people stay young, we eliminate all those health expenditures at the end. And uh, this idea has been developed a lot now, and it is called the longevity dividend. The longevity dividend actually shows that if people remain young, we are going to have extra money. And governments also will have extra money because we are going to save all those health expenditures at the end uh, because people will be healthy. You don't need to put money because you are going to be healthy. So this is called the longevity dividend. Um, There was a fantastic uh, article about this published by David Sinclair from Harvard, Andrew Scott from uh, London School of Economics, and another professor from Oxford University, where they uh, consider the amount of money saved. And we are talking about trillions and trillions of dollars saved if we stop people aging. So that is why uh, we have to cure aging Uh, not only, again, for ethical and moral reasons, that to me is the most important point, also, obviously, for health considerations, social considerations, but ultimately, because it is good financially, it is good economically, and this is called the longevity dividend. So David also knows a lot about this. He knows some of the people uh, who are working on this, especially Andrew Scott, who he has interviewed a couple of times. So David, do you want to expand on that? What I want to say is that this is an argument that more politicians are gradually going to understand and respect. Some politicians are worried about people living longer in unguarded moments. They sometimes say, I wish these people would hurry up and die. 
because the longer they live, they're afraid that they're going to be a burden on the healthcare system and a burden on the pension schemes. Andrew Scott's argument, he's a professor of economics at the London Business School. He is the co-author of a book called The 100-Year Life, which I was astonished to hear has sold nearly one million copies. And I'll be looking forward to the death of death selling a million copies. That will be fantastic too. It's an indication that people are interested in living at least 100 years. And in that book, which he has co-authored with Linda Partridge, another professor, I think, in the UK, they basically say, look, there's a chance you'll live to 100 and therefore you've got to plan your life differently. And if you plan your life differently, it can be a good 100-year life rather than uh, running out of money too soon and living in a state of destitution. So plan our lives differently. So he has the ear of a number of politicians. And some of the politicians are realizing, hey, aging society needn't be bad news. It will be bad news if we continue to approach diseases of chronic diseases in the same way as now. But if we are smart enough to address them at their roots as prevention, early detection, prompt prompt solutions, then it will be tremendously good for society. So Andrew Scott is somebody you should definitely take the time to listen to. And thanks to Jose for mentioning his interview on the London Futurist podcast, which is one of our most popular ever downloads. Thank you very much, David and Jose. And of course, I would encourage everyone to listen to the London Futurists podcast with David Wood and Callum Chase, always quite thoughtful commentary on emerging technological developments, as well as their ethical and societal implications. Our friend and U.S. Transhumanist Party vice presidential candidate Daniel Tweed writes that our healthcare system is much better at treating traumatic events and doing acute interventions than it is at treating chronic conditions, mostly with indefinite pharmaceutical courses. And of course, in order to reach longevity escape velocity and deploy these interventions at scale, this paradigm within the healthcare systems of essentially all so-called advanced countries today will need to change. Now, I would like to invite David Shoemaker, our Director of Applied Innovation, to ask a question. Yeah, hi, thanks, Janati. Speaking of Red Fest, I have my Red Fest shirt on today. I thought the Red Fest might get a plug from Jose, so thank you very much. And congratulations to both uh, Jose and David for this English edition of Death of Death and, uh, and obviously for the other translations. And uh, on top of that, just an excellent presentation today by the both of you. Uh, very enlightening, very engaging, very informative, as has been the, uh, the Q&A. So I, too, ran out and pre-ordered uh, the book, and I want to put in a plug for that uh, as well. And I was wondering how many people that are participating online have pre-ordered the book. Maybe they put a quick comment in the, uh, in the chat, and we'll get a chance to say, yeah, thanks, Bill. And because uh, yeah, for all the reasons expressed, that's, that's really, really important. And now finally to my question or maybe more of another comment. As I add uh, additional years each and every year, I'm really seeing how extending health span is really, really necessary for the motivation 
and what it takes to do the maintenance for extending lifespan. And uh, I really see that as part of this paradigm shift that you talked about, that extending health span being able to still be vital as you increase in age, even before longevity escape velocity, how that uh, really plays into positive public opinion, which can help shape the political climate and can help shape just overall general velocity uh, in the public eye. So I really look forward to reading Death of Death and I expect to find something like that in there, but perhaps uh, either of you would like to comment on that. Uh, okay, actually, I'm just going to say thank you so much for mentioning uh, RAD first. R-A-A-D, for those who don't know, Revolution Against Aging and Death. And we began talking about that in 2015 in Palm Springs, California. And then we held the first conference on 2016 in San Diego. And Bill Andrews is one of the founders, too, with uh, um, Jim Stroll, Joe Bardeen, um, Liz Parrish, uh, ben Gortzel, myself, and others. So it, it is a fantastic experience. I recommend that all of you join us. This is the biggest, the largest longevity conference uh, in the world, or even better, immortalist event. Uh, we believe that we can conquer death scientifically, and that this is very important. And I began shouting in Spanish, so get ready, Viva la Revolución! So that is my shout, Viva la Revolución, for Redfest. Um, so you will find many of these ideas, uh, David uh, Schumacher, uh, in, in the book. Uh, but for a more technical answer, I have David, who is also uh, waiting to, to say a few words about this. I'll try to be brief, because I know we are short of time. Absolutely, we can't have extended lifespan without extended health span. We will not get the benefits. So we are talking indeed, not just about life extension, we're talking about life expansion. We're talking about people not just being well, but better than well. We're trying to raise people's awareness of what is truly within our grasp. So we can have people in their 70s and 80s who are as healthy as they were in their 30s. And we can have people then in their 90s be even healthier again with lots of rejuvenation of their ideas, of their emotional life, of their spiritual life, which I think is a thing. You know, there are sense of purpose, sense of community, sense of higher consciousness. All of that can be rejuvenated as well as just rejuvenation of the body. Let's have that big picture rather than uh, just sometimes getting lost in the detail. And Radfest is great at raising these big picture ideas. Yes, thank you, David and Jose, as well as thank you to David Shoemaker for your question. And certainly I would encourage as many of the viewers as possible to attend RadFest in 2023. I have been there at every RadFest since the inception of that conference. And now we have about 11 and a half minutes left in our salon. And there are several questions that I would like to address. Uh, first is a question from Luis Arroyo, 
he asks, how does the success of longevity treatments line up with the future of climate change? And I think he may be wondering to what extent could the increase in human longevity if and when we do reach longevity escape velocity help combat the problem of climate change or how would it relate to the problem of climate change in your view? A quick answer, uh, Luis, um, because we are going to be living longer. We want a planet that is sustainable. We want an environment that is good. So actually longevity is the key to have a better world. Also longevity is a key not to have wars because we are going to be here so we will not want to be fighting everybody all the time. Just the opposite. We will want more cooperation, a more peaceful environment, a cleaner environment, and a safer planet. So actually, longevity is the answer to all these problems about climate change as well. I have a slide I sometimes show which says that the adverse impact on the climate can be written as a formula in which you multiply the population by the average energy usage, by the average carbon intensity of the energy, and you divide the whole lot by effectiveness in recycling. And what technology is likely to do is increase population and also increase the average energy usage. So some people are alarmed that, well, we're gonna have a bigger impact on the climate, a worse impact. But you have to look at the other two factors as well. The average energy, the carbon intensity of the energy, that can come down much faster. That's another two-hour discussion, which I'm not going to go into here, though you can read about my ideas on that in my book, Vital Foresight, amongst others. And then you have to divide by our ability to do recycling things, including taking carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And that can also be accelerated by good applications of technology. So technology won't just make us live longer and healthily, it can make the planet be healthier too. And there's all kinds of ways in which synthetic biology won't just only lead to rejuvenation biotech, it will lead to revolutions in agriculture. We won't have so much of the land used for growing crops to feed to animals so that the animals get big and fat and then we slaughter them and eat them. There's all kinds of drawbacks to that, but with improvements in biology, we can uh, make much better effective use of protein. We can grow meat without having sentient animals involved through cultivated meat or lab-grown meat. So there's a lot that can be done. And as both Gennady and Jose have mentioned, the fact that people can see they're likely to still be alive in 20, 30, 40, or 50 years time when climate change Actually, I think that the risk on climate change are much sooner than that, personally, but people have different views on it. I think there's a risk of accelerating climate change, just as there's a risk of accelerating lots of other things. And so I think we have to hurry up and use these technologies to improve our agriculture and improve our energy development and improve our recycling. And we are more likely to do that when we see a longer life and a better life, possibly, for all of us. Yes, thank you very much to David and Jose for those answers, and I completely agree. Now, I'm hoping to get in two more questions, one from Ben 
Paul Wegg, our Director of Longevity Outreach, and then another question from Bill Andrews because Ben wants Bill to ask a further question. But Ben, please go ahead. Uh, I will ask uh, in what way do you think that this book uh, will be shifting the needle or the Overton window differently or more effectively compared to prior publica publications? Uh, well, for, uh, first, Ben, thank you very much. Uh, you were one of the people who read the book thoroughly. And then you gave us a lot of recommendations that we also passed to the editor. Um, I don't know how much the, they took from your recommendations, but uh, we had a lot of feedback. So we are very, very grateful. Um, I think this is having a lot of impact. Uh, you It seems host got stuck. Yes. Well, David, perhaps you could uh, proceed while we try to get Jose's connection back. Well, Ben's question is very good because there are lots of good books in this field and some of them are remarkable and uh, there's new remarkable ones all the time. So I don't think there is just one book that's going to by itself tip things over. I think there's an accumulation of different books with different messages. The messages are all joined up internally, but they use different language. And so this is going to appeal to a different set of people. And maybe as a result of reading this book, I expect that people afterwards will say, well, that was so interesting. And by the way, there was some really interesting bit. And uh, we give uh, a long bibliography so that people are really interested, for example, in the different lifespans of different species. They will find that we've referenced a book by Stephen Ostat on Methuselah Zoo. So we will be a kind of central point that people will be inspired about, and then it will then lead them to research lots of other fields too. Yes, thank you, David. And it looks like we've got Jose back. So Jose, please finish the response that you were providing to Ben. Um, that, uh, yes, I have uh, been talking to many uh, political leaders, actually. Um, I am uh, totally surprised both people from the left and from the right uh, were interested in these uh, ideas about longevity, rejuvenation. So we are having impact. And I think this is important because we cover both the science and then all the ethical, social and political aspects of life extension. So we think we have a very complete book and also covering many areas, as opposed to some of the other experts that they focus on what they are doing, mostly. We try to cover many things and are having a lot of impact. Certainly, I can guarantee you that uh, this is uh, um, my own personal experience in, uh, in Spain and Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, and also in some other languages, uh, you know, the same in Portuguese, in German, in French. And I am uh, looking forward to go to China, Japan, and Korea uh, uh, when the book will be published in the next few uh, weeks, few months. And then also uh, to the Arab countries, because our book is also going to be published in Arabic, uh, in Persian, Farsi, and also in Kurdish. And it has already been published in Turkish, and it is a bestseller in Turkey. And um, I'm really proud because... 
you know, these countries are a bit different um, because of the uh, religious background, but they are also open to discuss longevity and rejuvenation technologies. So, so we are uh, having an impact uh, in many places, and, and I'm really excited. And thank you, Ben, uh, for uh, reading your book and all your fantastic feedback. So I hope um, you like the book and uh, you recommend it and order many copies for all your family and friends. Yes, thank you very much, Jose. And speaking of the death of death, uh, John H. points out there's now lab-grown chicken on the market that has been FDA-approved, and this is actual meat, not plant-based meat. So eventually we could see a future where there is still meat consumption, but it does not require the killing of animals, so it will be the death of animal death. And I am hoping that within the next year, I will be able to eat some lab-grown chicken or in vitro chicken. We shall see if this ambition pans out. David Wood recommends a book by Stephen Ostad entitled Methuselah Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. And now in the last two minutes of this salon, Bill, do you have any further question or comment for Jose and David? No, I don't, but I misunderstood. I thought you said that Ben had a question for me that Ben wanted me to answer. So I, I yeah, no, I have no more questions. I'm, I'm uh, very excited about this book coming out and I can't wait to read it. All right, excellent. And likewise, I look forward to reading The Death of Death in English. I do have the Spanish version. I need to actually learn Spanish in order to read it, but perhaps having the two books side by side will enable me to learn Spanish via comparison of the two texts. So, Gennady, uh, once uh, you live long enough to live forever, you will have time to learn Spanish. And I will have time to learn uh, Russian also and Chinese. Uh, so don't worry about that. You will have the time. And uh, let me tell you, we quote you in the book. We talk about your book, Death is Wrong, and, uh, and it is one of the bibliography sources. So, so you are in there too. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Jose. For that, it's quite an honor. And I do hope that by the end of this year, I might be able to release an updated 10th anniversary edition of Death is Wrong because there has been just tremendous progress made in our scientific understanding of aging and many more examples that can be brought to bear to illustrate pathways toward radical life extension, toward the death of death. And I do hope that in the meantime, some of the young people who read the book back when it was first released have become interested in this field in transhumanism, in longevity, and are making contributions. So, Jose, I will leave it to you to provide some final words for this salon. Yeah, uh, just a few seconds. And I also want, David, uh, a few more seconds to close this. Uh, we live in incredible times. This is the best time to be alive and to remain alive. We are going to see incredible technological advances in the next uh, two decades, more than in the last two millennia. And we are in between the last mortal generation 
and the first immortal generation. So my, my question to you all, where do you want to be? And so, David, let's finish it up with you, please. Where do you want to be? Well, we should all be in communities where we can be inspired to be more productive, more constructive. We should all be reading books. We should all be attending events where we can, virtually or in person. There's been rightly a lot of emphasis in this Salon on Radfest. Let me put in a quick word for the Longevity Summit Dublin, 17th to the 20th of August, where there's going to be a fantastic collection of longevity speakers, possibly with more science emphasis than in Radfest. But Radfest has its own wonderful things as well. That would be a great place to meet all of you in Dublin, 17th to the 20th of August. Onward and upward. Yes, indeed. Onward and upward. And we do hope to see many of you at Longevity Summit Dublin. And I really appreciate Jose and David for the excellent thorough presentation and the answers to so many of our audience questions today. I hope that you all live long and prosper.